the best, 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 best of Crest in the Afternoon countdown. Number 28. Hey, good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. In 1945, American and British forces began to unearth horrible evidence that the Nazi regime had systematically tortured and slaughtered over 6 million Jews during World War II. And um, we learned that the last surviving prosecutor of the Nuremberg trials, which sought to hold particular Nazis responsible and accountable for crimes against humanity, the last surviving prosecutor of the Nuremberg trials, Benjamin Ferenz, passed away at an assisted living home in Boynton Beach, Florida. He was 103 years old. My guest, uh, Michael Pokalduk, is a professor in the Bush School of Business at Catholic University of America. He's the author of the Memoirs of St. Peter and Mary's Voice in the Gospel of John, a new translation with commentary. He was appointed by Pope Benedict to the Pontifical Academy of St. Thomas Aquinas, and he's offered us a reflection on the passing of uh, Ben Ferenz and also a look at natural law and the Nuremberg trials. Michael, good to have you back here. Thanks. Hey, Al. Thanks for everything you do. Your show is fantastic. <laughs> Thank you. Thank and you. Have you followed the career of Ben Ferenz? Well, he was the chief prosecutor for the Einsatzgruppen. This is the teams or squads of SS men who would follow behind the advancing German army and just round up Jews, mainly Jews in small villages, and shoot them in cold blood. It's mm -hmm. horrific. Uh, and I, I, have, I have often read the uh, interrogation of the Einsatzgruppen commanders because it's, it's so revealing about human nature and natural law because we have this horrific revulsion against murder. Yeah. And so I, you know, I've, I had seen his name in the, in the documents from uh, the Nuremberg trials all the time. Mm -hmm. And um, although he doesn't actually do the cross interrogation, it's other prosecutors who do that. So when he passed, I felt like I knew him yes. actually already. Oh, what a wonderful man. I, you know, if, if you re listeners go to the Catholic thing and look at the article today, you see a picture of him at Nuremberg when he's a young man. He's in his late 20s. Yeah. And what a handsome, what a handsome guy. I mean, what a handsome Jewish face, really. Yeah. And he just looks so smart and looks like he has a lot of integrity. I just love the guy. Yeah. I'm not very familiar with him, but... Um when I was actually visiting Auschwitz, the chaplain that was part of our pilgrimage bought Rudolf Hess's autobiography, Commandant of Auschwitz, and gave it to me. Yes, it's and, on, uh, it's on my desk. Yeah. And, and uh, that kind of heightened my interest in what becomes of these criminals afterwards. And uh, then pursuing that, uh, I came up with Benjamin Ferenc's name and recognized that he was still fairly active um, in human rights circles, and that there was tremendous respect for him. What was his argument? I mean, did, was he a believer in natural law, and so he could hold these well, Nazis say, accountable? Go ahead. Let me say something about Rudolf Hess first. Very, very few of the Nazi criminals showed any kind of remorse or regret. Right. And after he was sentenced to death, he converted to Catholicism. He was raised in some kind of ultra-strict 
strict Catholic right. household. Right. So I suppose he reverted, but it was true faith. But how do you, he was responsible for uh, hundreds of thousands of deaths, including almost all the Hungarian Jews, 400,000. Mm. How can you really repent of that yes. or appreciate its enormity? So this is, I use, I use this with my children. I said, doesn't this prove the existence of purgatory? I mean, there's no question that if he repents and he gets the last rites and go to confession, he's not going to hell, but there's also no question he's not going to heaven right away, right? right? I right. mean, this Rudolph has proofs the necessity of purgatory. <laughs> very good point. Um, Ferenc was oh, a fascinating man. He, his biographer says that he had a tough time serving. He was a foot soldier a little bit. He got five medals in the for the service in, in Germany and fought in the Battle of the Bulge. Uh, I think heroic man, but a lot of uh, soldiers are put in positions that are not morally clear. And, uh, you know, they have to follow orders. Right. And his biographer says that he was very, very deeply disturbed by this because of his profound conviction in the statement of the, of the Declaration of Independence. Interesting. That every human being is endowed with the right to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. So anything that looked like it was carelessly taking the life of an innocent, he could not abide with at all. And this is a, as you say, for Nuremberg, it has to be a natural law argument, because most of the criminal actions undertaken by the Nazis were in accordance with Nazi law. That's right. You they, have to appeal to some other kind of law. Yeah. Yeah, and that's that's what's so amazing. Um, I don't think people think about this, because they look at Nazis and their brutality, and of course they just react and say, oh, that's horrible. Of course they should be held responsible. But if you were one of those Nazis, you would have said, hold me responsible. Why? I was obeying the law of my land. This is where yeah. I, I was a citizen, and I was obeying, I was a citizen, a good citizen, obeying the laws of my country. On what basis are you going to uh, charge me uh, and hold me legally culpable and guilty? And so the natural law was still respected enough in the mid-20th century, I guess, that they could make kind of a natural law defense of some sort. Well, it was explicitly appealed to, and the crimes against humanity are, of course, a natural law crime, because That's no right. jurisdiction, no country had crime against humanity on its books. The International Military Tribunal, which met in London right after the, as the war was wrapping up in 1945, started deciding the procedures of the Nuremberg trials. And right from the start, they said that the defense that I was following orders and following the law would not excuse anybody, although it might be counted to mitigate their guilt. Wow. But it would never excuse anybody. This is something that people need to take seriously today, because um, there's not a lot of thinking beyond what recognized authorities say, but recognized authorities are wrong about quite a lot of things. Yes. And we actually have two uh, nations now, or actually three, I guess, if you take, consider Iran, who are on record uh, believing that the, the Western notion of human rights is somewhat culturally specific. Um, China doesn't buy into the, the whole package associated with the UN um, Declaration of Human Rights. And uh, there's been some squawking in, in Russia about it, and Iran has never been uh, deeply yes. committed to it. So it, it, yes. this is a time where we have to have a, 
a, a reassertion of confidence in natural law thinking. I agree with you, and sometimes people draw a distinction and they say, well, natural law I can agree with, but natural rights I don't accept because they're too individualistic or they don't make sense. Yeah. But the two are really interchangeable. Yes. If it's a natural law that no one can kill an innocent, then an innocent has a right not to be killed. Right. It deliberately, it, it just, it, they're equivalent terms. Now, it's true, sometimes people can detach rights from any kind of notion of a common good, and then they then they start misfiring and they malfunction. We see that with the so-called right to privacy. It really has caused a, you know, a lot of harm and damage and mm-hmm. justified bad things. But, um, but right to life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, religious liberty, all of these are perfectly uh, sound notions, and they've been affirmed by all the popes. And the, uh, as you say, the International Declaration after World War II was a really solid basis for yeah. agreement among nations. So, no, there's no way it should be rejected. Agreed. Did did he, uh, did Benjamin Ferenc ever discuss uh, his own uh, personal faith? Uh, was he a, a, an observant Jew? To be honest, I didn't read enough in the biography yeah. okay. uh, to, to, to figure that out. Yeah. Uh, it's an interesting question. Yeah, I've never, I've never heard it uh, addressed, so I can't, I have no idea, really. And given his championing of, uh, you know, natural law and protection of the innocent, do we know what position he took on abortion? Well, I don't know. Um, I bet with um, some probing I could find out um, I had limited time to do that. It was an extremely interesting question for me. Um, He did devote the second half of this 100-year-plus life to the establishment of the International Criminal Court and to world peace. He became quite a kind of public activist. Mm against war as a kind of accepted means for resolving disputes among nations. Now, it would have to be the case that he accepted the justice of a defensive war or a war to liberate concentration camps, because he was directly involved in that, Mm -hmm. and he saw immediately the good of um, closing down the concentration camps. I mean, that that took place by Patton's Third Army, not because some anti-war protesters convinced the Germans to disarm themselves. <laughs> right. There's only one way that war was going to come to an end. That's right. That was by a lot of military force. Yeah, yeah. Right. But, sure. um, you know, one of the Einsatzgruppen uh, commanders retorted to him, well, you just did the same thing very quickly, though, with Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And I don't want to necessarily go, go down that uh, direction on your show, but I kind of agree with him. My own view is that that was not a justifiable military act, Mm -hmm. and yet there you find Ferenc, um, you know, advising Truman at the time, being on very good terms with Truman. Um, Later on, he spoke out against nuclear war and against Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It was very easy to do that after the fact. After the fact, yeah. 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 But, um, so... He was not a consistent man. So in, in an interview with the Washington Post at one time, he said, you know, in wartime conditions, it's just, uh, he said something like he's kind of, he surprised himself at some of the things that he, so to speak, tolerated. For example, when he was liberating one of the camps, some displaced persons got an, got an SS guard, put him on a Guernsey, 
slid him, beat, beat him, slid him into an oven, mm. put him half alive, then took him out again, beat him to he's almost dead, then put him in the oven and burned him. And he was standing there with a gun as an official person. And this is Ferenc's own words. He said, I could have, with a shot or with a, or with a, a display of military order, brought this to an end. But they didn't do it. Wow. <laughs> so <laughs> he was not a consistent man. Yeah. He was not consistent. But well, his principles are very good. Yeah. Wow, that's that's I'd never heard that story before. Good heavens. Yeah, it's kind of shocking. <laughs> yeah. Michael, thanks so much. Uh we're gonna make your uh column available uh from the Catholic thing and uh, people will be able to read it and uh, thanks for joining me today and reminding us Wonderful of Benjamin Friends. Yeah. Yes. All right. Good to honor him. Say a prayer for his soul. Thank you. Mike, Michael Pekolik is a professor in the Bush School of Business at Catholic U.